This podcast is brought to you by Blackbee Ministries International. To find out more, visit blackbee.org. Well, welcome to the Richard Blackaby Leadership Podcast. My name is Sam, and I'm your host, and I'm joined by Dr. Richard Blackaby. Good to be with you, as always, Sam. It's always a pleasure, Richard. And uh, we've been going through, we've done a little mini-series here on yeah. our, our great founding fathers mm-hmm. um, of this great country of ours. And uh, a lot of it, it just sort of came out of a recent trip you had uh, to the sort of the homeland of many of these yeah. uh, great leaders. And uh, we've sort of dove in on a, a few of their lives and, and just how complicated sometimes it can be to lead, especially when you're leading something new, like founding a, a country and a democracy, and it's imperfect, it's it's muddy, it's uh, con- cantankerous at times, uh, mm-hmm. but through it all, their their legacy is, uh, is, is intact, and, and it is a lasting legacy that they leave. Uh, but uh, one one aspect of of leading uh, that we're going to focus on today in this series on our founding fathers is that uh, that of empathy. Yeah, and you know when you're starting up a whole country, you're fighting a war, um, you're asking people to put their life on the line. Th- th- you get some really raw moments where you can show what leadership does. It's a leadership laboratory, and so that's why. I think just as I was uh, spending a bit of time in Virginia looking at some of what the founding fathers, the early presidents did, uh, there's just so many leadership lessons and observations. They don't always get it right, but uh, they certainly show you some of the challenges that come with leading. And so I thought maybe in this last session that we would just talk a bit about empathy. And uh, it was Daniel Goleman that uh, really popularized the whole idea of emotional intelligence and said that mm-hmm. that was just a key to successful leadership. And that his, some of his theories have been challenged a bit of late, but uh, uh, but I think there is something to, uh, I think, just the essence of that, which uh, emotional intelligence comes down to empathy. It is the ability uh, to intuit or to sense what's going on in someone else. You know, a lot of people know what's going on in them. They know if they're getting angry or fearful or whatever, but it takes a certain skill to, to be able to sense, uh, the emotions going on in an audience into the, your followers. Uh, I think a very similar thing, uh, happens when it comes to good teachers as well. Uh, Mm Um, a good teacher in a classroom can tell if they're losing their students, if they're, getting bored, they're getting restless. Uh, I I think a good public speaker, uh, what makes them, I think, in part so good is not just their ability to speak, but their ability to read an audience. And I think that's probably why someone like Abraham Lincoln was so good. He was a a common man, uh, common upbringing, uh, but he had a a real sense of the pulse of the, the average person. And so he he knew how to tell stories that spoke to those kind of people. And he had the kind of sense of humor that uh, the average person would respond to and find funny. And so, so I, I guess one question that comes up, uh, you know, in my mind, as we think about uh, empathy, is this something that can be learned? Yeah, uh, well, I you're, guess <laughs> you're jumping right in there and you're uh, anticipating. That. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, I've said this before, but I think you can learn, I, I think I can teach a person leadership. I, I, there are some skills that come with leading, whether it's delegating, uh, equipping, 
you know, holding people accountable, teaching, inspiring. There, there's certain things you can do that will help you as a leader. Uh, but the one caveat that I typically uh, will list is uh, if you have people skills. If you don't have people skills, you won't know which button to push. You won't know where to aim. You won't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll be doing one thing, and you won't even realize that you're losing your entire leadership team. They're all bailing yeah. out. Uh, and and so you won't know that you should be doing something else. And so I would say you have to and, – and that part – I'm. I, Daniel Goleman said that you could teach empathy, but um, but it certainly is going to be very difficult. And yeah. there have been those that I think just uh, I, I was kind of skeptical that you could because now if you're if you're smart, if you really want to learn, if you're really paying attention. Um, but even then, I think you can only learn it to a certain degree. Like, hmm. uh, like I, it, let's say you didn't have any empathy, um, and yet you're trying to uh, maybe be a, a school teacher, and and yet you know you're you, you're not picking up the signs that your students are getting restless, they're bored, they're losing interest. You keep droning on, and so I might be able to show you video afterward and say, okay, Sam, do you notice here when people all start yawning? You see when they start flipping through their notebooks or leaning back or closing their eyes or laying their head on the on their desk? Those are all signs that you're, you weren't picking up. That, And so the next time you see five people in your room yawn, just make a mental note. Okay, I need to change the pace here. I need to get some energy in the room. And so you might still not, I mean, like a good speaker, a good teacher just can feel it in the air. They can just feel like, okay, I got to talk a little louder. I got to move around. I got to change up the focus. I got to engage the class. Got to do something. I can just feel like we're dragging here. Um, you may never, if you don't have empathy, you might never feel that, but you might, because I taught you to count how many yawns you noticed or something, yeah. you would think, well, okay, I thought this was all going fine as far as I could tell, but based on the math, I guess I should change it up now. So, whereas someone else wouldn't have to count the yawns, they would just, there's, a, there's have an intuition. Yeah. You can feel it in the room that yeah. I need to change things up. Whereas someone else maybe never feels it, but they've just been taught watch for certain signs and if you have these signs you know then do this but so i think with leadership it's kind of a similar thing i think there's people that really want to lead maybe they're in a position of leadership but but they don't feel it uh they they don't know how to connect with people at an emotional level um and and so unless you can connect with your followers at an emotional level you can administer them, you can manage them, but you're never going to really inspire them. You're not mm. going to move them to some of the heights you might have had you been able to connect with them to their heart. And that's that's one distinction that you've you've made is, is you know, you you can uh, you can manage people, you can administer people, but uh, you you know leaders actually move people. You yeah, know, you would say onto God's agenda, but yeah. But more broadly, you know, if you can't move people, if you can't inspire them to take action, to move from where they are to where they should be, then that's, you know, you're, you're 
only doing the job of a manager, right, uh, and not a, an actual leader, right. And so you're. I think it behooves anybody that's in a leadership role to enhance your uh, your empathy. And Winston Churchill one time had a, a famous quote. He just he just basically said, "People who ride in carriages have their own particular point of view." And I think what he was saying is uh, aristocrats, wealthy people, they're riding up in a carriage. They're not walking in the streets with everybody else. Um, yeah. And so they, they, they're they higher up. And so they're going to view the same life everybody else is viewing and experiencing, but from a different angle. And, um, and the interesting thing with a lot of leadership in the past was that oftentimes in the past, you would you would be an aristocrat. You'd be a noble if, if you're going to be put in charge of the king's army or in charge of a regiment or something, uh, you probably came from the aristocratic class. You probably had money. You had your own horse. You didn't have to walk like the infantry. Um, and it was just kind of assumed that the people leading were all aristocrats. They all had a certain p- point of view. Uh, they all had grown up in a similar kind of way with a certain amount of luxury and, and privilege and so on. Um, and But that, that uh, but at the same time, uh, those people had a real difficult time identifying with the the person on the ground because they'd never been that person. They'd mm-hmm. never had that life. They they didn't have to necessarily go to the front of the line as a infantryman when the enemy was shooting at them from point blank range. Uh, and so you you wanted to lead them, but you, but you didn't necessarily know their language. You didn't know what they were afraid of. You didn't know how to inspire them. And there's a famous uh, account early on with George Washington where he kind of, although he you know he grew up uh, basically fatherless and relatively poor as a child um, because his father died when he was young, but. Uh, but he was he was kind of adopted by an aristocratic British family that lived in uh, in Virginia, the Fairfaxes, and uh, so he always kind of saw himself as a bit of an aristocrat. And then, of course, he became a plantation owner. Um, and so, when he was asked to lead uh, the Revolutionary Army, the, initially, especially, he had a bunch of militia that, like farm boys, some of them as young as fifteen years old, just signing up. And having maybe a three-month uh, enlistment until they could go home to the farm, and they would come with very rudimentary kind of weapons. A lot of them, their shoes wore off. They didn't have. They're walking around bare feet. Uh, they had rags for clothes, and uh, they'd never been shot at before, and certainly not by trained British regular soldiers. And so, um, so early on, some of these soldiers were just, it was almost embarrassing to see them. And mm. really throughout the entire Revolutionary War, right till Yorktown, uh, the British, when they finally surrendered at Yorktown, they all wanted to surrender to the French because the French soldiers were all dressed in respectable uniforms <laughs> and looked sharp like soldiers. And then you had these ragtag American militiamen that looked like a bunch of hick farm boys uh, just right off the, you know, the bailing uh, wagon. And, uh, and the British were embarrassed to have lost to, to, to the Americans. And so when Washington is suddenly leading these soldiers, uh, in, the, in the early stages especially, he was really indignant about them. And in fact, at one point when a bunch of the, of the American uh, soldiers were running for their lives, uh, fleeing from the British, 
uh, Washington got so frustrated, he just, he, he cursed and basically just said, is this what I'm supposed to fight this war with, with the, this kind of material, this kind of soldier? Yeah. How, how, can I, how can I have an army that was so ragtag and, and, and so amateurish and rudimentary? Um, and of course, uh, there, there's, there's a big debate that uh, Machiavelli kind of introduces in his book, The Prince. And he says, uh, a ruler or a prince, he says, can be one of two things. Uh, they can either be loved or they can be feared. Mm-hmm. And he has a whole section on what would you rather be? Would you rather have all your people that you lead fear you, respect you, or would you rather they loved you? And oftentimes you can't have both. If you, if you want to be your employee's best friend, uh, then they'll, they may love you and appreciate you at least as long as you keep doing stuff that they like. Uh, but they may also not treat you with respect. They may treat you as a colleague, a peer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Machiavelli said, hey, I mean, if you can have both, that's great. If they love and fear you, that's a great combination. But, but his, his point was, but if you can only have one, he said, far yeah. better to be feared <laughs> than loved. Uh, because he said, if they fear you, uh, then, of course, you can always be nice to them anyway, and then they're just grateful and relieved and and caught by surprise because uh, they expected the worst, and then you you end up being kind to them. But but he said if they love you, then mm-hmm. they uh, it's hard to sort of get that respect back once you've lost it. And so so uh, Washington very much kind of followed the the, the Machiavellian model there and. He, he believed you needed to keep a certain distance between officers and their men. Uh, mm. Not that you should never, you'd be totally aloof from them, but, but they should know you're an officer and, and they should respect you and you should dress the part. And so early on when, when Washington was enlisting all of his officers for the new Revolutionary Army, he said, I mean, one of the things he was looking for is young men from respectable families, basically American aristocrats mm-hmm. that that carried themselves well, that knew how to ride a horse well, that looked good in a uniform, uh, that uh, had a good use of language and communication skills and so on, that cared for themselves well in a respectable manner. And so he, Washington begins by trying to develop an army that kind of parallels the British. That's because that's all he knows. That's his model. But interestingly, over the course of uh, basically spends six years with these soldiers in the field. And th- the Army didn't fight very much, usually in the wintertime. There were a few exceptions, like in Trenton, where he kind of sneaks in on, around Christmas and New Year's and, and wins a couple of battles. But, uh, but for the most part, you, you sort of went into your winter quarters and waited till spring to start fighting again. Hmm. So that would have been a perfect time for Washington just to kind of get in his carriage and go back to Mount Vernon and spend the winter with Martha at, at his own place. But he, there were years where he literally feared that there wouldn't be an army left by the time he got back, that he needed to stay on site just to try to help get food and money and clothing for these uh, starving, often underfed soldiers. And so basically for six years, he's in the field with these guys. And, um, and over the course of six years, he sees these farm boys uh, fighting heroically and sometimes going days without anything to eat and going through the wintertime with, with basically holes in their shoes or no shoes at all or no jackets, or not enough 
uh, heat to stay warm in their little cabins in the wintertime. And he, and he watches them fighting fiercely against the best army in the world and, and going toe-to-toe with them. And Washington changes, uh, and he begins to change his view of these, of these farm boys. And he's always a little embarrassed at how ragtag they look compared to the British and French, but, yeah. uh, but he begins to uh, empathize with them. He begins to see what they're, that, that they're made of some stronger metal than he first thought. And uh, he watches uh, their courage. He watches them rise to the occasion. Of course, they don't all do that, but but he he learns to appreciate the ones who have made great sacrifices. And it kind of actually bothers him because there's a lot of American business people that are actually making lots of money on the on the war, and they're selling their. Here's the American army starving to death, and these uh, American farmers are selling all their food to the British army because the British pay better. And mm-hmm. and so Washington's watching that and saying, well, these farm boys are starving and freezing to death out of patriotism for their country, but that patriotism is not causing the business guys to sell at underpriced so that their own army has food to eat. And so he, he gets to really appreciate these guys, and and he learns how to speak to their hearts, and he, and he learns how to speak in a way that motivates them. And Washington's not a great speech giver. And it's interesting because uh, Washington, he has tooth disease, basically. And while he's still, I mean, just middle-aged, or, uh, he loses all of his teeth, ultimately. He doesn't have a tooth in his head left at the end of his, oh, wow. by, while he's president of the United States. And so he has to get these very rudimentary uh, dentures. That, and he's very embarrassed about it. It's very, very secretive. Like, even the way he talks, he, he even writes letters in code to his dentist because he doesn't want the letters to fall into enemy hands, which sometimes they do. The British will intercept them. And he, if they do, he doesn't want his enemies to know that he doesn't have any teeth. And so the interesting thing, if you watch some of the pictures, the portraits of Washington, especially later on, sometimes his, his mouth, like he, a lot, you rarely see him smiling, like, or not smiling where his teeth are showing. And even his his chin will sometimes kind of bulge out in places, and it's he's got this very painful, uh, awkward, archaic kind of uh, uh, dentures that he's using because he doesn't have any teeth in his head, and so it also means he doesn't like to talk a lot, doesn't laugh a lot, or smile a lot in public, hmm. um, and so he's not a big speech giver, and yet he learns how to speak soldiers' language, and he. He learns how to uh, what speaks to their hearts, and there's a very famous incident near the end of uh, the Revolutionary War where the soldiers are just so frustrated because they they haven't been paid. They, they've gone months without being paid anything, and uh, they're hungry. They've got rag, rags for clothes, and they're talking. They they meet and they're very seriously talking about we need to just march on Philadelphia and just you know, take take those politicians at gunpoint and make them pay us or something what they owe us. Mm-hmm. It's not unreasonable what they want. but uh, And so Washington hears about it. He, he races to the meeting, steps up to the podium, pleads with them to be patient. He, he But then he, he uh, instead of just condemning them for being so seditious, he he praises them for the noble sacrifices they've made and that, and he says history will tell their story for years and years to come. 
and basically says, don't ruin it all now. You've been, you've risen to such heights and then don't ruin it because you just lost patience with this fledgling government. But then in a, in a masterful kind of thing, and I don't think he did this on purpose. Uh, it was just instinctive at this point, but, uh, he, he's going to read a letter right at the end and he, and, uh, but he's basically his, his, uh, eyesight has, uh, has declined, uh, drastically. And so he, uh, he goes to read a letter and he realizes he can't read the, the small print anymore. Uh, and he started wearing glasses and so, but, but he has never worn them when he's out riding about or with the sol the soldiers have never seen him with glasses on. Uh, he's always been back in his office with his glasses on writing letters and things. And so he, he asked, he says, pardon me, he says, and he reaches out, pulls puts his glasses on and he says, I've grown, uh, old in your service. And he says, now I find myself also going blind. And, mm. and the, and that was so impactful, uh, when they realized here's a guy who's not just sat back in the white house, uh, uh, passing decrees and making us uh, pay all the price. This this man has aged in the six years and lost mm -hmm. his eyesight and gotten gray hair, lost what teeth he had left. And uh, and many of the soldiers are, are, they just start weeping that they, because they, they feel like even in that kind of dignified sort of way, Washington has just spoken from the heart and uh, they, they, they identify with him and they, they recognize here's a man who's suffered with us and who knows what it means uh, to be frustrated and to not have what was promised. And yet he's still being noble and he's still speaking to us uh, person to person. And um, that, that inspired him. And, and so it wasn't natural for him. He was more naturally an aristocrat, but he realized, but if I've got to lead these people, I've got to I've got to look them in the eye and be able to talk to them in ways that they understand, in ways that move them. And, mm -hmm. and that requires empathy. That requires knowing your audience and knowing what they actually care about. Well, that brings up a couple of questions, and I'll uh, save those for after the break. This fall, we've got two opportunities to attend the Spiritual Leadership Coaching Workshop that Blackaby Ministries offers uh, each year. Normally, we just have one in the fall, uh, in Jonesboro, but this year we have, in addition to the one uh, in Jonesboro, we have one in Rapid City, South Dakota. And these are for folks who work with people. Uh, you might be thinking, well, I'm not interested in coaching. That's not really something uh, I'm into. But I would say that anyone who deals with people uh, can learn something from these uh, coaching workshops. It's really learning about how to ask the right questions to help move people onto God's agenda. These coaching workshops will be uh, October 23rd and 25th. That's going to be the one in Jonesboro, Georgia. And then October 12th and 14th will be the one in Rapid City, South Dakota. All the information about both of these can be found at blackabycoaching.org slash workshop. Uh, there is um, a discount for early registration, and that goes through uh, the month of August. And so if you would like to attend one of these, uh, best to sign up sooner rather than later. So Richard, hearing you talk about how Washington kind of begins his journey with those soldiers and then sort of ends his journey being more empathetic, you know, obviously he's gone on a bit of a character arc there. He's, yeah. he's grown, he's matured, he's gotten better at his job. Um, how much of this empathy thing and, uh, you know, knowing your audience kind of uh, approach 
it seems like a lot of that has to just do with time, uh, with the people you're leading. Um, but then also how much is, is the circumstances in which you lead? Cause I would think that a wartime leadership has a way of kind of compressing, you know, your ability to learn and react and adjust like into a much faster, like, uh, sort yeah. of way. There's sort of a pressure cooker yeah. uh, effect where right. they like, maybe it took him 10 years to learn it otherwise, but since he's at war, she's got six months to figure right. it out or die. And that's a lot of people have realized that even like when it comes to things like racism, you know, you put black and white soldiers in a platoon that are being shot at by enemy and they very quickly become a band of brothers, regardless right. of their ethnicity and their race. Uh, and a lot of times the same on a sports team, you know, they'll, yeah. because you're, you're together, you're, you're living together, eating together, serving together, and There's so, a common enemy. Yeah, and so that that will certainly drive you quicker uh, to identify. And, you know, and I, I think that's very true of, of Washington. I mean, it was a life and death with each other for about six years. So uh, they there was you had to appreciate people that were willing to put their life on the line for what you you wanted, what you were asking them to do. And, you know, there's certain ways you can uh, do that. I mean, I, I think in, if you want to empathize more, you have to be able to get out of your own skin. And you have to realize not everybody's going to be motivated the way you are. Some people are highly disciplined people. They're very self-motivated. And they often have a real difficult time understanding people that aren't. And so mm-hmm. it's like, well, and and, and Washington often, he, he did struggle with that. And it's interesting because he kind of learned to identify with this ragtag group of soldiers. But uh, as a slave owner, um uh, you know, he, he definitely had his blind spots there. Uh, and and there were times, I, I read uh, that he, over the course of his uh, career, that, that Washington had about 47 slaves who escaped his plantation, that, that ran away. 47 uh, over the course of the years that he was running it. Uh, and there were times where Washington was absolutely befuddled uh, why anybody would run away from his his plantation and especially some of his favorites and, and one of Martha's favorites. Yeah. And they would say, but that, but that was our favorite. We, she got to work inside with Martha and, and he was trained to be a special cook. And we, we put a lot of effort into him and, and we took him places and we were very kind to him. And we're like, why would he run away? And you'd say, well, because he, <laughs> he was, was still, still a slave, slave. and yeah. he was not free and he, he wanted to be free. And, and there was a certain point where I think uh, the Washingtons never could really empathize. They just, of course, it was so foreign to them. Uh, right. Th- he understood what it meant to be a soldier, uh, but he, he didn't know what, really what it meant to be a slave. And, and so he could only go so far with that, uh, where it's just clear that his empathy was not always not as complete. it should be. And, yeah. but, but I would say if you're a leader, certainly asking questions, saying, well, but what is it like? And that's why, of course, there's been a lot of talk about walking the shop floor, just leading by, by walking around and just seeing what happens uh, in the ranks. Uh, Sam Walton was famous for that. He would show up uh, at midnight in, in uh, the, the room where all the Walmart truckers would uh, go eat he'd bring a box of donuts or something and just sit down and just ask them what, what they were seeing and, and experiencing as truckers hauling all the Walmart goods in and out and what concerns they had. And, uh, 
and because of that, he, of course, developed a great uh, transportation system and, uh, and a whole system of moving products uh, like the world had never seen before. But, uh, but he didn't assume up in his ivory tower that he just knew everything. Um, and, of course, that's always a danger for people that lead. The higher up you go, the, the more out of touch uh, you're in danger of becoming down below. And so certainly understanding psychology, um, understanding uh, that people have various struggles, various perspectives. Um, and as a leader, you can't expect that everybody, everybody will just see things the way you do, that they'll value what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly if you own the company, you can't be bewildered when people don't want to work as hard for the company as you do, that they don't want to sacrifice their families for the company like you you might be doing. Uh, they have other priorities, and uh, they have a right uh, to have their own uh, interests that they're meeting. They're, they're not working there to make you successful. They're working because they need to earn a living. They, they want to pay off their mortgage. They want to get their child through college and uh, so understanding, well, what, what is it that these people need? What would, how would they feel successful? How would they be excited and happy about our business or our church uh, doing better? Uh, I've seen that with pastors at times. They, they want their people to make all kinds of sacrifices so the church is more successful. But, but really, it's making the pastor more successful. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why can't you just sacrifice every evening here at the church so that uh, I create a reputation for myself as a great pastor? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think empathy means you, you look at people and you say, well, uh, what, what is it that would cause them to be loyal? Uh, how, how, if I were to treat them in what way uh, that would make them... Uh, proud to work here and and grateful that they got to work here with us. And uh, but I can't assume it's just they just love this company just like I do. Uh, they don't own it. They're not the CEO. They're not yeah. the pastor. Um, but if, but if I understand what makes people tick, if I understand what they're afraid of, if I understand what they're worried about, uh, and then I can speak to that and and I can fashion it and and, and most people don't want to just be a clog in the in the in the wheel just like one more of many different little uh, parts of the of the machine they they want to feel like they're a person of importance of worth that their their contribution makes a difference um, and that's what Washington would do he would tell them you're making history uh, people 100 years from now will be t- will be inspired by your story of sacrifice and patriotism and loyalty. And he would say, you're not just a, f- a grunt foot soldier. Uh, you are a patriot. And he, he used words that would speak to their hearts and their aspirations uh, to be someone of significance. They, they weren't going to be the general. They weren't going to be elected president after being a foot soldier in the Revolutionary Army. But they could be someone that won a great victory for their nation and that their descendants could be proud of. And so he would speak to that and language that did, did connect with them. And, uh, and so I, I think especially, I might just um, wrap uh, this session up by just saying, uh, it's, I think it's more necessary than ever to have empathy as a leader because um, the, the workforce is more diverse than it's ever been. It used mm-hmm. to be that most people working for you probably had a similar background and similar aspirations and similar ethnicity, um, maybe even similar gender. Uh, and now there's just a hodgepodge. The whole world is there in the workforce. Uh, 
every imaginable ethnicity, background, uh, religious background. And so for you to lead them, if you're oblivious to the, the different uh, viewpoints that they have, various backgrounds they come from, various concerns they have, you're, you're going to be constantly step, stepping on landmines and wondering, well, why are they so upset? I didn't, you know, I, I, that seemed pretty straightforward to me. Why are they all angry? Yeah. Why are people leaving? Why, do, why don't peop, good people want to work for me? Uh, well, it may be that you don't, you, you lack empathy. Uh, it's interesting, uh, you know, even uh, Hamilton, who, who admired Washington a great deal, but as the, and he, he was writing letters for Washington, he was doing administration for Washington, but what Hamilton really wanted to do is be on the battlefield. He wanted to make a dare. He didn't want the war to end without him having at least had a chance to win glory and honor and out with bravery and so on. And Washington, but he just saw him as too valuable uh, in writing letters and things to let him go out on the battlefield. And uh, and finally, Hamilton quits and just says, Washington, I, I'm glad to help you. And I know you need someone that can write your letters for you, but... I'm a young man, and I I need I want to be able to tell my kids that I fought at you know out on the field, not just I didn't write I wrote letters the whole war, mm-hmm. uh, and so he ultimately Washington uh, sort of belatedly realizes okay this guy he needs a chance to shine and be able to tell his grandkids that he actually fought in one of these battles, and so he puts him he he did he did do uh, lead some artillery early on that's how Washington noticed him. But then for several years, he was just writing Washington's correspondence. And so he ends up leading an attack at Yorktown right at the very end. Hamilton gets to lead uh, soldiers in battle. And, of course, it's a very big battle that ends the Revolutionary War. Uh, and even a hero of mine like the Duke of Wellington uh, grew up without any praise. His parents didn't think much of him. Uh, and when they asked him later... Uh, what would you do differently? If you could lead over again, what would you do different than you did in, in, in your life? And he said, I would have given more praise. I, I would have spoken to people's hearts more. He said he wasn't used to getting it, so he didn't know how to give it. Uh, and so people respected him because he beat Napoleon. He was a good general. But um, but he didn't know how to speak to people's hearts uh, the way that he his people needed him to. And he realized even belatedly, he probably could have been even a better leader had he known how to empathize with his men. And so I think for all of us, uh, it's, all, it's hard for everybody to get out of their skin, to realize people aren't just like them. But I think if you really want to be a great leader, you're going to have to say, how can I be more empathetic? Instead of just getting upset because people think differently than me, maybe I need to take time. I, I may not always agree with their perspective. But I need to do a better job of understanding their perspective. Yeah. And, and then perhaps I can lead them better than I am right now. Well, that's our hope here, that uh, you're always going to be leading better than you did uh, before. And that's a great place to leave it. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If this is something you enjoyed, it really makes a difference if you leave a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We always love hearing from our listeners. So email us at podcast at blackme.org.